On TV Concierge, The Ringer staff delivers a guide to the vast streaming landscape by discussing one show or movie per day, including premieres, the latest surprise Netflix hits, periodic check-ins on favorite TV shows, new movies available for streaming, and the host's favorite shows to watch right away. Check out TV Concierge exclusively on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Vital Farms. No matter how you like your eggs scrambled, over easy, or sunny side up, the people at Vital Farms believe in one thing, keeping it bullshit free. That's why their pasture-raised eggs come from hens who each have over 108 square feet of space to roam and forage all year round. So you can spend less time questioning your food and more time enjoying it. Look for Vital Farms in your grocery store and learn more at vitalfarms.com. Vital Farms, keeping it bullshit free. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Welcome to the Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Doma Media. Thank you to Yola Tango, as always, for letting us use their music in the introduction. Today, we have as a, our guest, the most frequent guest of all time on this podcast, Eddie Huang. If you haven't listened to the earlier podcast with Eddie, please check them out. Um, very funny, very... I think different topics than we normally talk about on this podcast. And Eddie's now back in America. He has come back and he is here to promote his new movie that comes out tomorrow, Friday, March 5th, Boogie. I enjoyed this movie very much. I think it's unapologetically Eddie and being Chinese American and many things. It's it's not just a basketball movie. It's not just a coming of age story. It's not just a story of immigrants. It's many different things. And I'm I'm excited to see how people feel. I think it very good, healthy conversations will come out of it. That much I know. But I hope that people watch it. I hope that people support it. And uh it's a fantastic debut of Eddie as a director. And uh he's quite an actor. I think he's really good at acting. Maybe not as good as his mom, but really great. So check it out. Boogie out March 5th. But before we get in this conversation with Eddie, I wanted to talk about anchovies. And not just an Asian fish sauce and not just pickled anchovies. But I have like, I've just never even talked about this publicly. One of my favorite foods to eat is very good sourdough bread. It's got to be sort of a crusty bread with a good crumb a healthy slathering of butter. It's got to be good butter. It's very important. There are differing degrees of butter. Not all butter is the same. Don't use margarine. Don't use, I cannot believe it's not butter. And I don't know if good butter is always, as a rule, the more expensive butter, but I actually think it's sort of true, especially when you go to the supermarket or the farmer's market. You want butter from good cows and not all butter is the same. And I bought some very good butter. I was very excited to get it on some bread. And I bought some good anchovies. And not all anchovies are the same. And I'm not buying the bocarones, which I love, which are pickled, vinegared, then cured in olive oil, 
anchovies. And these are not salt-packed either, which are also delicious. I'm talking about canned or jarred anchovies that have been salted, filleted, and in olive oil. Um, Tinned food in general, that should be another my mini opinion as fact. And this is basically my ode to salted, cured, stored, tin, jarred, however you want it, anchovies. Uh, my preference when I'm eating it in this fashion on bread with butter is with a very nice jar of salted anchovies. And don't throw away that olive oil. That's really good, I think, when you make a Caesar dressing or something. But I just don't understand why a lot of people are fearful of anchovies. And in general, I think we need to get over this fishy flavor that so many people, I think, in America are opposed to or afraid of or have apprehension about. I think a lot of that is one of the reasons why we can't get other kinds of fish, other kinds of Asian fish dishes, particularly beloved in this country. We've already talked about my love of salted mackerel. But anchovies, not only is it sort of delicious, it's healthy for you, it's just pure umami. That's all it is. When you add salted anchovies, the curing process has just amped up nucleotamic acid. It is now basically a salty, fishy umami bomb. And you don't have to eat it as a sort of small filet. You can mix it as a compound butter. You can put it in a dressing like such as a Caesar salad, which is not a Caesar salad without anchovies. On pizza, tremendous. One of the most versatile ingredients, one of the most delicious, I'd argue outside of saying soy sauce and condiments. I don't think of this as a condiment, as an ingredient. It's arguably the most delicious ingredient that is sort of non-plant-based. How about, let me put it that way. I don't think it's got anything on fermented soy in general, but for a fish product, it is clearly the best. And I just don't think people eat enough of it at all. And I'm not even talking about dried anchovies, which is melchi in Korean, something I grew up eating in different sizes. Anchovies also make tremendously delicious broths. You don't always have to use katsubushi. You can use anchovies and anchovies come in all sizes. And when you're dried and smoked, they're delicious. I also am too lazy when I make it at home to peel away the stomach and the intestine. Don't want to get too gross as you're supposed to do. I like that flavor. I like that bitterness when I have my broths. And that's the main way I grew up eating or drinking or eating my mom's soups. She was a anchovy broth person, first and foremost. And all of her Korean soups had some version of an anchovy broth as a base. But I don't know when I discovered that anchovies was something that you could eat outside of, say, pizza. And I remember it being not vilified, but made fun of like, ooh, anchovies on pizza. I'll tell you, one of the best pizzas you can have is no cheese, olives, and anchovies, like a marinara pizza. That's going to be really good eating with a healthy dose of olive oil. Can't be beat. I want that right now. But one of the best snacks you can make at home, it's got to be on good bread. You got to be really liberal with your butter. And sometimes I get lazy because I don't have it. um, I never have butter room temp, right? If I had room temp butter, I'd be way more generous with the slathering of butter on my toast. Not toastless, sourdough. I lightly toast it, but I make sure that I put the butter on where the bread is not hot. I don't want the the butter to melt. So I'm giving you my recipe. You take a, a nice chunk 
of a sourdough loaf. You toast it, but then you bring that toast back down to room temp where it's not like, uh, it doesn't really have any color. It's just got some texture. And you take butter. And unfortunately, I am never smart enough to temper my butter beforehand, which is why I sort of have to smash my butter on the toast. But a trick that you can do is to microwave, say, a little knob of butter in a small dish for about, depending on the power of your microwave, 15 to 20 seconds. And it'll soften it up because fat molecules, lipids, are meant for the microwave. And it's hard to judge how much butter you're going to need when you microwave it, and which is ultimately why I'm always mad at myself because I never have enough butter on my fucking bread. And I put it on, you know, I would say three to four pieces of anchovy, at least on a big slice of bread. You want every bite. And if I was a little bit more industrious, not as lazy, I'd probably cut them into pieces. So each bite of my bread has a, a chunk of anchovy. But buttering your bread is a whole nother story. I just think in general, it's almost criminal that people just do light wisps of butter on their toast or bread. I'd rather have less bread and more butter than have like four pieces of bread with not a lot of butter. And again, my personal theory is, opinion is, if you can put a lot of avocado on your toast, the fat content's relatively the same as butter. So you should basically be eating your bread with as much avocado as you would normally put on your toast if you eat avocado toast that way. I'm talking all over the place. <laughs> basically, I want people to eat more of this. I think it's delicious. You should get over your fear of anchovies. It's so good. I don't think enough restaurants service their customers with anchovies. I really don't. I mean, off the top of my head, I can only think of like one place in New York City that serves anchovies the way I like it, and that would be at Bavette and at Via Carota by Rita Sodi and Jody Williams. I'm sure there are plenty of places that sell anchovies on on bread with a liberal slathering of butter, but I just don't see it enough. I just don't see anchovies enough in all facets, and I hope that we start changing our ways because it's... So goddamn delicious. And I don't think that me talking about it will move the needle at all. But if you do like anchovies, do yourself a favor. Buy some good tinned or jarred anchovies. Really good butter that's unsalted. It's important that it's unsalted. And a really good loaf of sourdough. And do yourself a favor. Make yourself a nice little snack. Some people want to put black pepper on it. I don't think that you need to. And um If someone doesn't want to eat it, maybe you should question your friendship with them. That's all I'm trying to say. Anyway, very far away from talking about anchovies on butter bread is Chris Ying, Eddie Huang, and myself talking about Boogie. Enjoy. You are probably our most repeat guest, and we are honored. It's not quite as prestigious as SNL, but we hope to have you as a five-time, seven-time, 15-timer club. Huge honor for me. (laughs) And uh, we very much want to get into your movie, but I really liked your post a couple weeks ago when people were just starting to gain traction about Asian-American hate crimes to the elderly. And you basically, more or less to paraphrase, and I want to get your correct wording. You're like, you have to arm yourself. And I, I fucking loved it because it was the only one that I read in the social media universe that was like, no, 
we're not going to just complain about it. You you got to do something about it. And I thought yeah, that was Cobra sort of representative. Kai. Yeah, Cobra Kai was also representative in, in, in like in terms of the themes of your movie. But could you elaborate a little bit? Because we've talked about it uh, quite a bit. I'm sure if you're listening to this podcast, you're you're aware that there's been a lot of hate crimes against Asian people in general over the past year plus, and against elderly folk, and how it's just not getting picked up and it's just continuing. By and the media, I guess, is finally yeah. talking about it. But yeah, I. I give a lot of slack to Asian American leaders, to be honest, and I don't speak out against Asian American leaders. I think, I think the only time I did was when Andrew Yang was telling us to like dress more American and be more American, like, as if us not looking American, quote unquote, was a problem. But I think our leadership on like the government level and the political level and the people that really like to speak out like on a consistent basis, I think they're still figuring out what makes the wheel turn. And for me, like I I went to law school, I worked at the Innocence Project. Um, From my experience looking at it, the law simply memorializes what people do in the streets. And I thought it was kind of funny that a lot of Asians like first response was like, let's appeal to the government. Like we need help, government help us, police help us. And I was like, number one, when have the police ever helped anybody? besides white people. Number two, it's not like there is a law allowing people to hurt Asians. This is completely against the law. This is completely immoral. This is insane to attack elderly people of any race, but they are targeting us because they think we're responsible for the coronavirus pandemic. But secondly, it's also because we have a long history in this country of bowing our heads, looking down at our feet when we walk around and we're super quiet and passive and people think they can pick on us and we're smaller just physically in stature. And our culture teaches us to be humble and and pious. And that doesn't translate to this country when you're on the street. And for me, I was like, there is an insane rise in violence And before we get to the think pieces and the appeals to government and memorializing what's going on, we need to just protect our elderly. Like, don't let your grandma or grandma outside by themselves. Like, walk with them. If you see another one, walk with them. And also for the young Asian Americans, like, it's very important to learn self-defense. Like, I, I don't know what it's like for other kids growing up in bigger cities like Oakland or New York or Seattle, but in Orlando, Florida, I got picked on all the time. DC, I got picked on, you know, like... I got thrown off a slide when I was five because I was Chinese and broke my arm. And my parents were like, we're going to take care of the arm, but don't you ever go get your ass kicked at school again. And that made me who I am. And and Dave, just listening to you talk about your family, I think your dad raised you in a very tough way as well. And while like we're probably still unpacking and untangling a lot of like (laughs) the crimes of our fathers, so to speak, it did do a lot for us. There's like, you know, in, like in Hamlet, there's nothing good or bad, but thinking makes it so, you know? Well, incredibly profound and, and something that I can clearly empathize with, uh, at least with my my father, right? That aggression in some ways, you know, it wasn't really aggression. It was just like, you have to fight. You have to try harder than anybody else. And you can't let your your will be broken by anybody. And I don't think that is, that is, I think, a lot of ways the immigrant story, but, you know, a very Korean thing, but also just 
Asian in general. And it's weird. It's it, again, it's this yin and yang. That is certainly it. It's about having a, a steel resolve, but simultaneously being soft and supple and honoring your elderly, honoring your family, being subservient to the things that came before you. And I think that's a dichotomy that a lot of Westerners will never understand. How could you be both simultaneous? Yeah. Yeah, totally. And I remember even in fourth grade, we had like just moved to Orlando and I love basketball. And that this is one of the reasons I chose basketball for the boogie story. But I was playing ball after school. All the kids would make me wait. Like I only got to play when like there was not enough people. And it's like, fine, let let the Chinese kid play. And I remember I got in the game and it was like really late. I was still waiting for my mom. And this kid Blair just elbowed me in the face and instantly like my face swelled up. And I kept playing. My mom picked me up and she's like, what the hell happened to your face? And I was like, oh, it's, you know, this kid just elbowed me because they don't like me playing. But it's cool. Like basketball is cool, mom. And she's like, it's not fucking cool. If you get hit again, you're not playing basketball. And so it was a thing like, all right, I can't just not get hit like fighting at school, but I also can't get hurt playing sports and playing sports was the arena where I like really tested out my physicality and it really trained me and taught me in some ways to be a man physically. And did you play sports, Dave? Yeah, I did. You know, besides golf, I, I did play a variety of sports and it's one of the reasons why your movie is important and also why I wait for these sort of Christ-like figures that are Asian to happen in sports because I believe that is going to... It's not necessary, but I think as a vehicle for understanding Asian equality and acceptance that we're as good and can be better in many ways and we're not limited by our skin color because sports is such this platform of understanding sort of excellence athletically and as a culture Asians in general have been seen as you slow you suck you're not fast you're not good at these things and I've certainly helped perpetuate this in my life but I, <laughs> I I know that's not necessarily true across the board and I can't wait for that to happen which is why I think we put so much pressure on the Jeremy Lins and I want to get into it a little bit deeper I thought it was so goddamn important that you did a quick analysis of Michael Chang and the French Open, like I remember watching your movie with my wife, I said, like, that was a seminal moment for me because I remember being dressed in my church Sunday outfit and my mom, first time ever, my dad and mom said, we don't have to go to church, even though we we're dressed. Because they were like, wow, this is, this is a historic moment. Yeah. This is a historic moment. It really moment. was. And I was like, wait, we're not going to church? Of course, we're watching, I remember watching the TV on my, in my parents' bedroom and we all watched and we were crying. My parents were yeah. crying. I couldn't, I wasn't crying. I was like, what? I was still too young to truly understand the significance. And I can understand from a certain Asian perspective that we shouldn't put all of our hopes on athletic excellence, that it's not necessary. I totally understand that point of view. But simultaneously in America, if we want to get acceptance, it's very important that we sort of yeah. play that game too. Also just like, you know, so much of, thought comes from the fifth century. And I always like to read fifth century philosophers. And it's like the fifth century Asian philosophers like Lao Tzu, Sun Tzu, you know, they also talk about how important the physical is. And Plato talks about educating the body and how the body is like one of your minds. And so it's a very, you're a very incomplete human if you are not educating yourself in a physical manner, as well as a intellectual, spiritual, emotional, they, they all come together. And I remember that moment. And I also, you know, 
like I love Manny Pacquiao because Manny Pacquiao, I love him. And he's such an interesting study of masculinity to me because he's like this little dude. He got this funny mustache. He got the Filipino accent. He comes out to fight to like journey songs, Mm -hmm. you know, and then he gets in the ring and it's like, oh, my God, this guy has the most insane hand speed, insane punching power. And I remember when he fought like Marco Antonio Barrera and it was just insane. People like, how how does he have this hand speed and power and can fight for like all these like 10 rounds, 11 rounds? I believe he went in 10 rounds. I think he went in that fight. And everyone like kind of laughed at him before. And he just proved how strong and fast he was despite all the goofy stuff. And then they loved him for the goofy stuff. And that, that was really inspiring to me as an Asian. Like, yo, you can be super goofy, super fobby, just love karaoke, have facial hair like Chris Ying and beat the shit out of people. Well, the other thing, the other thing about, I mean, Chris Ying got the whole Manny Pacquiao facial hair. I've kid. got a Manny Pacquiao facial hair thing going on. I'm going to give myself a little boxing glove tattoo. The other, yeah, uh-huh. Eddie, the other thing about Manny though, he's so fast. He's so quick. He came from all these unorthodox angles. But when he when he was coming up, he just fought almost exclusively Mexican fighters. And yeah. Mexican fighters were known for just like, they will never give up. And they will stand toe-to-toe yeah. with anybody. And that was what really spoke to me also as like watching this Asian fighter. I'm just like, he's standing there with, with the toughest motherfuckers in the game. And he will not back yeah. down. They're just throwing haymakers back and forth. Can we talk a little bit from a personal perspective on like, physicality because i think it's like you're 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 totally right you know it's whether you know it's in this moment we need to sort of arm ourselves train ourselves in self defense like dave you know you and i joke all the time about being big boy asians i think it's more essential to our identity than almost anything else other than our asianness eddie like you cut a, a very recognizable figure like you're not a <laughs> big boy in the same uh chubby way as we are but like you are instantly recognizable for for what you look like, how you appear. And I think that's like, that plays into what we're talking about as well. Like cutting some sort of imposing figure is very important, I think, in, in my life. You know, standing out as an Asian person who is not small. Yeah, no, I, I was always really small. And if you talk to any of my really good friends or even like anyone I've dated, they'll tell you like, dude, Eddie's like the like sensitive and kind of like, a mushy Pisces, you know, like when you really get to know, I have the same birthday as Dave's son, Hugo, you know, and like March one, it's like, we're, we're Pisces, very, very emotional, mushy guys and sensitive, but I had to learn to be tough. It's not my nature, you know, um, my dad hit me a lot and I don't condone that, but it is just part of my history. And if I cried or if I flinched, he just kept hitting me he would hit me until I just took it and ate it. And I think I gravitate towards things that give me that feeling in a way, like my feet are in a fire because boxing, like I get, I'm in the gym three times a week. I get hit a lot, but it brings something out of me. And I get to this place that I've been to before that there's like a voice inside me. That's like, you'll survive. You're not going to die. And I kind of enjoy living that close to that feeling. And then also like getting tattooed, you know, like my whole back is done. We did it. Like it was like 24 hours over six sessions, but the first hour you're cool. The second and third hour, you're like, dude, just get me out of here. Like get me out of here. But once you pass that third one, it's, 
you, you're like, I could do seven. Keep going. You're not going to kill me. And breaking through that wall mentally is insane. And it's really weird. It's like the physicality leads you to the mental breakthrough. And then the mental breakthrough makes you physically stronger. And I, I just see this cycle and I don't know any science about it or philosophy, but that's just my experience as a kid. And, and like football, you know, I'm the smallest dude, but they put me on the line. I played right guard. I played defensive tackle. And my mom's like, why the fuck are you doing? This doesn't look fun at all. I'm like, no, nah, I like, I like to eat shit. I like to be in the trenches. I want to see like how far I can push myself physically. Everything you just said, I can relate to a lot of these things. And it's this weird thing that I don't know if, if it is this cross-cultural thing about when you're getting punished by your parents, particularly my, our father figures. And I just, again, specifically remember like, oh, he's telling me in Korean, don't cry while he's like making me cry. And you're like, what the fuck? You're basically, it stops when you stop crying and stop hyperventilating. It's this weird thing. And obviously, I don't think it's healthy. I don't think it's positive, yeah. but it's how we grew up. And I think it's also, you know, had a lot of repercussions for myself, but also in sports. It's just like, okay, I don't think I'm very good at a lot of things athletically, but no one's going to hit harder than me. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. And that was the thing. I have to, I, you have to have something that was, different about you. At least that's how I felt when I played football. It's like, I'm not going to let my team down. I'm not going to make mistakes. And I almost feel like you have to excel more because you're Asian on the football team, on a predominantly white or African-American sport, at least in my school, right? And and I mean, I'll be honest, I think I was fucking good. I was supposed to play D3 ball, but I was never going to be better than that. But for high school football, like, yeah, I was all league. That's you so know? crazy yeah. if you can make D3. That's crazy. You know, that's really dope. And that was it. It was like, I know when it was like, Dave's the best player, but I don't want anyone to say I was bad. And I almost feel like you had to work a little bit harder just to dispel any of the Asian American bullshit. I do think there's a place for physicality in the world. You know, it's like yin and yang, like you, you're not going to eliminate evil and you're not going to eliminate violence. It's, I think it's about understanding your relationship to it. It is a thing, you know, like, I'm glad the humans have evolved where we don't actually have to kill animals or even eat animals to survive, but we are still physical and violence is always around us. And you have to have a relationship you understand and truly feel in relationship to that. You can't just be like, I'm never going to be physical. You know, like I just run away. It finds you. This episode is brought to you by Vital Farms. No matter how you like your eggs scrambled, over easy, or sunny side up, the people at Vital Farms believe in one thing, keeping it bullshit free. That's why their pasture-raised eggs come from hens who each have over 108 square feet of space to roam and forage all year round. So you can spend less time questioning your food and more time enjoying it. Look for Vital Farms in your grocery store and learn more at vitalfarms.com. Vital Farms, keeping it bullshit free. Maybe another interesting path to go down is, and we should keep talking about this like physicality thing, but in, in Boogie, you have one of the most, I don't even know how to describe it. it. It really stuck out to me, but you have a sex scene in Boogie that I think was so illuminating and, and like so straightforward in how it dealt with Asian masculinity in that way. In in, yeah, the, in the way that's that we are, we are castrated and desexualized, and you know, uh, 
all of the stereotypes about Asian sexuality. I, can you talk a little bit about that scene and your approach to that particular part? So that is my favorite scene, Chris. And it's my favorite scene because a lot of the film is about masculinity and how you find that as an Asian man in America. And Boogie tries to do it with physicality. And then he tries to do it by talking back and being tough and being rude and being a contrarian. But ultimately, you get down into that bedroom and the bedroom is a crucible. And he realizes that real masculinity comes from vulnerability, intimacy, and closeness. And just dropping that veil and being like, yo, this is who I am. And I hope I'm good enough for you. But you know what? I'm probably good enough for myself. And it's when you start to talk to yourself and love yourself, I think that's when you will really find that masculinity springs up and starts to like flow through you in a more natural, positive manner that it's true. I think Boogie is, I'm not trying to give away too much of the movie, but you know, Boogie's uh, worried. This is his first time. That J. Cole wet dream song. Well, I'll just say the elephant in the room thing, Chris. My bad. I I probably should have said it. I didn't (laughs) want to. But we'll just talk about it. Look, every Asian man in America has has been told from a very young age, your dick is basura. It is just garbage. (laughs) It's trash. It's fucking dog food. Like, get out of here. You know, don't be a joker. You're bringing a spoon to a gunfight. (laughs) And I remember when I was about 13 or 14, I opened a Maxim magazine at the grocery store and I'm looking at it and they had a graph. People from these countries and races have the biggest penises. And it had literally a bar graph of penis size by race. And at the bottom was like Asians and Irish people. It was, it was pretty funny. And <laughs> I was like, oh fuck, we're, I'm so screwed. This is terrible. And um, I just opened like a kid's bank account at Washington Mutual. They give you like the little envelope thing. And inside was a ruler, a Washington Mutual ruler. And I pulled out the ruler. I got my dick hard. And I was like, oh, shit. Above average for my race. Thank God. I'm okay. Listen, man. You know. When when Bookie is like, I measure that shit. And when he said my dick might be trash. Like, I I mean, it's it's weird to say. But that like blew my hair back. Because I was like. That scene is literally what I did by myself. And I've literally told this story to like. Probably half of the women I've dated just because they're they're like, yo, you're little like it's interesting. The first time I have sex, I'm usually I'm a little raw. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was, it was funny. Like one of the women I was closest with said to me once, she's like, you know, the first time we had sex, it's just like she's like, you just felt really raw and exposed. But after the first time it was she was like, I was almost like surprised, like you. You're very confident. I was like, yeah, it's like, I know who I am now, but that little kid, if I really like a woman and I really, really care, that little kid will pop up. That's like, am I, am I okay? Am I good enough? Is she going to like this? And not to put my dick on a plate metaphorically, but it's the same feeling you get sometimes when you serve a dish to someone you care about. It's like, is that, is that dish as good as I thought it was? You know? Well, it's that's exactly. I mean, it's, dick it's, is usually a dish best served warm. <laughs> 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 it's just, but yeah, it's it's not even just like in the bedroom, like you're saying. It's that sort of like being hammered into your brain, your inadequacy by Maxim Magazine, by everything around. It applies to, you know, 
Dave, we talk about this podcast all the time. Our food might be trash because we've been told it's fucking stinky and terrible all the time. Our dicks are trash. Like, I, you know, I struggle to explain this to my wife who is white. And we we have conversations about this. Oh, and damn. Congrats, Christian. <laughs> fucking top shot. Humble brag. Humble brag. But she's like, she's like, I don't know. She has not really asked this question. But like, I, I remember having an argument at some point or a discussion at some point where I verbalized this thing where I was like, being Asian pervades my every waking moment. <laughs> like every waking moment of the day is dictated by this. Maybe not like it's not in the front of my mind, but it's always there. In that bedroom scene to me, like I said, I we also don't talk about this shit. Like like Dave was saying, we nobody talks about this. And the fact that it was there, I felt like going back to your Michael Chang scene, I was boogie in that scene where like dad's showing me a Michael Chang tape again. And I'm like, I don't get it. I don't care. You know, when I was a kid, like, you know, the, the thing where like Asian something happens for the Asian American community and all the parents start buzzing. I was always like, I don't know what the big deal is. But when when I saw you were making this movie, that's how I felt. I was like, this is a seminal moment for us. Like, I'm so excited that this is going to happen, that Eddie is going to, like, talk about this shit. He's going to face it head on. So, Thanks, man. It means a lot that you guys gravitate towards it because I think for a long time as a kid, because I was just not accepted for who I was and being Asian, my identity in a lot of ways was defensive and reactionary. And I would present a tougher, harder exterior. And I was always like snapping jokes and being funny and like being funny was a way that you would be liked. But as I've gotten older, I've just become comfortable in my skin and comfortable with my own masculinity and who I am. And I love a person like Manny Pacquiao that people used to laugh at. I love Michael Chang, like seeing him like exhausted running and it's like yo lendo's clearly stronger clearly the better player but this dude is gonna win with heart and i was like you cannot change who you are you cannot change too much of yourself physically but it's to come to terms with it and love it and be like not like adam sandler on come gems this is how i win that's what you gotta do and boogie's character in many ways is an anti-hero because he does a lot of things that are like uh, i don't love that i you're being a dick here. Like, bro, why, you're so uncomfortable in your skin. And ultimately, he finds it by almost surrendering. Like, surrendering to fear and surrendering to your boundaries uh, at times is, like, really therapeutic. I think there was something very significant for me to watch this. And I think it's a question I'll pose to you guys on this podcast as well. Um, I never once picked up self-hating or self-loathing being Asian from Boogie. And that's yeah. something that I have battled quite a bit. And, you know, a younger Asian, or I've talked to other people that are Korean or not Korean that are Asian, they're like, what the fuck, man? And I, it's hard for me to justify that. But also, they didn't live my life. And if anyone, actually, Eddie understands that a little bit as to why that might be the case, because a lot of it is, how would you know when you just want to fit in? And the very thing that's not letting you fit in is your skin color, your culture, your food, your appearance. And if you have no representation, if you have no other ways to find yourself in culture, I think it's very hard, at least it was for me, to accept that. Yeah. And if it seems the only way for acceptance is to adopt something else or to not be you, I think it's natural. And I'm not the only person I've talked to. I don't want to name names, but well-known Asian people that have like come to terms and through that sort of 
trial and tribulation. They've accepted who they are. And in some ways, they're like, I appreciate me being Asian more than ever. I never thought that I'd ever be here. I certainly am in that camp. And I think some of the criticism from Asian culture can be the most biting because like, dude, to be Asian in this country where you are, if I grew up in California, Riverside or K-Town, I don't have any of my neuroses at all. Yeah. But you grew up in Florida, Virginia, D.C. area. You know what I'm talking about. It's a very yeah. different kind of Asian to grow up in that world. Yeah, I mean, I remember being in a class, in a science class, and we were working in a group, and there was a kid that was two years older, and he was in my class because he's a dummy, but he was just taking his pen, and he kept going, Chinaman. And I was like, I'm going to ignore this. Chinaman. Like, yo, what are you doing, bro? Chinaman. And he ended up just, he just wanted to keep pressing because he was like he's not gonna do shit and he ended up throwing the pen at me and i like leaped over the desk and i just choked him and then another dude in our group broke it up but he's like yo you had to do that if you didn't do that he's gonna fucking throw that pen at you every single day and as we were talking about being picked on and because we're asian we're talking about it through the asian lens but i wanted to mention pop smoke because this film I really designed to say, I'm going to use my Asian American experience and the things that I've seen, but I know that this is going to translate and travel way outside the Asian community into the Latino community, the black community. And I, I think it will even connect with, with women and mothers and fathers, everything, because regardless of your race, while I do think Asian kids get picked on the most at school, anyone can relate to this. And one of my favorite moments in production on this film was one day I was standing on the sideline with Pop and Pop was just magnificent. Like he's just such a good actor. He was really in his body. He had no fear. He was willing to try anything. And I just turned to him and I say, hey, what's your parents, you seem like you come from a good family, bro. You know, and like, I think most people listen to Pop's music, maybe wouldn't ask him that question or wouldn't deduce that or would just assume that he's just like another dude from Canarsie, another dude from the streets. But he's like, nah, you know, like, it's cool you asked that. Like my mom, she's a teacher and uh, I was a good kid, man. He would call me big dog. He's a big dog. I was a good kid. I used to get good grades. And he said, he's like, you seen the video? And I was like, yeah, I seen the video. Because Pop, when he was 15, the kids in the neighborhood surrounded him. And basically what happened to me with the guys like throwing the pen at me and laughing at me happened to him. He was surrounded by people and a guy slapped him and it went viral. And everybody saw this video and Pop was like, I, I swear, big dog, I was a real good kid. I got good grades, but that made me a monster. I never wanted to be made feel like that again. He was like, it really upset me that dude came for like my manhood. And I just looked at him. I didn't say much. I gave him a pound, but I knew that he knew that was in this film. And he related to it because when I would be coaching Boogie and talking about it and getting Taylor to go to those places, because Taylor had a lot more fear than Pop did. Pop would coach him up too. Pop would be like, yo, just look, I'm going to poke you. I'm gonna laugh at you. I'm gonna push you and just go there, you know? And like, Pop was incredible. And, and it was really like a family with us on set. And he knew what that character Boogie needed to go through. And in a funny way, Pop in his real life 
I think, had gone through more of this being bullied and picked on than Taylor Takahashi had. Mm. Because Taylor was a star basketball player. He's an all-time leading scorer Alameda High School. Always very physical, always very strong, very fast, and um, a tough kid. But Pop had this sensitivity, and he's a cancer. And like we really spent a lot of time talking about that and that moment and how to like bring that out into the film and use that. And so while we're here talking about it in relation to the Asian community, I, I just want to say that regardless of race, there's people in every community that go through these things. And that is the power of cinema. Uh, that is the power of humanity that like, regardless of where you're from, like we, we do have something that connects all of us. And, and that's the shit that makes me really warm my heart. I think his performance, like he says so much, he's, he, an incredible way to communicate just with his eyes. And there was like a yeah. wisdom and knowingness like you're talking about. I thought about him a lot as we were, as I was watching this film, you know, he plays an antagonistic figure. He doesn't have quite as much backstory as Boogie does, but he seemed to, when I would watch him, I was like, he knows what this is about. He knows what yeah. this movie is about, you know? Yeah. In the script, or I'm sure you had in mind, what what college is, is uh, Monk going to? Kentucky. You know, he, he Calipari boy, he, you know, he don't want no coaching. Just roll the ball out. Cal going to roll that ball out. He's going to win a national championship, you know? He's a Kentucky Wildcat all day. And then he'd be a New York Knit, you know, because we, we, we now Kentucky grad school. <laughs> I mean, maybe there's Boogie too, but do, do we see, um, actually, I don't want to get talk about it because I don't want to reveal the plot of the, of, of, of the movie more than it needs to be. But I wanted to tell you, man, like I, I was nervous watching this. <laughs> I was in the sense that you have a platform. I had no idea that you would take the challenge on as directing because the worst thing you want is, oh man, like what if this is bad? It's like when Crazy Rich Asians came out or like whenever like Minati or any of these movies, you're like, fuck, I hope it's awesome because of the same thing that we've been talking about. Like it has to be excellent because if it's not, it, it doesn't set us back, but it sort of perpetuates the bullshit that's already there. So that was like my own bias. And then I was just really fucking astounded at the shit you poured into this. And it's, deceivingly complex with issues that may or may not hit people until after the fact because you 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 go all in and in a lot of ways it's the immigrant story it's this freudian thing with we have with our parents it's also confucianism and chinese values it's it's all of these things and as you've already spoken about from a ending the toxic masculinity and, and showing that real strength is being soft and vulnerable. And it's an incredibly complex movie. And I, when I watched it, I, I texted Ying and we haven't talked about it. I was like, man, I got, I got to like think about it because it was a movie that I didn't expect to be that because on face value, it's a basketball movie, but in some ways it's the furthest thing from that. So I wanted to congratulate you for putting your nuts out there and doing something outside your comfort zone. And I think it's a fucking awesome movie. And it's not just for Asian Americans, but clearly if you're Chinese American, it's going to resonate, I think, a lot more because of the family values. I think one of the most powerful scenes of the movie is when he's getting disciplined by the principal. I mean, his coach by, by, by uh, my God, Herc from The Wire. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> Dom. Dom. Yeah. Dom. Big Dom. <laughs> that, 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 that. That to me, for me, my favorite scene in the movie, because that spoke volumes uh, of like, 
you have the American punk ass kid, you know, Boogie saying, fuck you, coach. I'm going to do me. I'm acting like all my other idols that play basketball. You know, I'm going to win the game for the team. And then you don't expect him, nor does the coach or the principal for him to turn on the Chinese switch and ask for forgiveness and embarrassing his ancestors. And could you unpack that? Because if you're not Asian, you may not understand what the fuck just happened. Yeah, that's another story that's true to life is I stole something from my neighbor's yard once and the cops came to get it back from me. Me and my friends stole it together. And when the cops came, my dad asked what happened and he just bit his lip, didn't say another word and yelled at me in Chinese, Gui Sha. No explanation, no, just Gui Sha. And I looked at him because I didn't want to do it. And he just, he gave me the stare of death. And I just knew, I was like, either you kneel here or he's just going to chop you up later. And I, I just kneeled in our driveway, on cobblestone, in front of this police officer, in front of my friend, in front of his mom. All the neighbors were driving by. And the cop literally just eyes wide was like, you know what? You got this handled. Thank you, sir. <laughs> and my dad was like, no, I'm sorry. He should never do this. This is shameful. And I just kneeled in the driveway for hours. And uh, it taught me a lot. And it was one of those things where I, I was in high school and I thought I was the man. I, oh, I can do whatever I fucking want now. And my dad was like, you will never embarrass me or our family. And uh, I really love my dad for that. I really do. He really held me accountable and made me own up to doing something shitty. Like who steals something out of their neighbor's lawn? Did you love your dad for that immediately? I did. You did? I did because I knew I fucked up. I knew I fucked up. And uh, I just thought I was going to get away with it. Eddie, you don't see that shit in film, man. And I, that's why this movie is important, right? Thanks, you were telling Dave. a story that honestly, unless you, you've lived it, you can't share that. And who the fuck has the opportunity to share that moment? And that speaks yeah. volumes. It's more than just the bedroom scene. It's like you're telling your culture in representation. And I hate the cliche representation matters. But here's a fucking perfect example. Yeah, Dave, I, I really relate to what you said. And I think it's actually very vulnerable on your part to say, yo, I was nervous watching this because... You know, as an Asian American, there are only so many opportunities. We've, we've had maybe like six shots at this over the last 30 years. Like, oh wait, Asian American directed and written film. It has to be good. Cause if I'm not good, we don't get the next one. Like, look at what happened to black people in the eighties and nineties. There was like this run of black film and then there were a couple not so good ones. They didn't make money. And then grand opening, grand closing. We have to be good every single time. And that is a lot of pressure. But as a person that earned the shot to do this, I was like, I can't let people down. And I welcome that pressure and I welcome that responsibility because that's part of the job. That's part of the job when you're coming from a community that has no representation. And I know there are a lot of directors and writers that want to kind of disconnect from it and they just want to speak as individuals, not as like part of this like huge community that's also like, what is Asian America? And I understand that frustration and I feel that as well. But when we step out into the public with our work, with our pants on, I think it's very important to take on that responsibility and not, not be upset about it because it's a privilege that we get to represent, you know? 
Amen. That was that was that was great, man. And you do it really well too, man. Like I I you know, I love this show and 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 as we've become like homies over the last two years, it's just like it's really cool because I think there are a lot of Asians pitching in. Sometimes I get upset about something and then I see you already posting about it. And then I see like other people posting about it, like Carol and Umberto from opening ceremony and like, you know, Philip Lim's always involved and and it's and you know, Justin Chan, who did Gook and he he has Blue Bayou coming. I really like Justin Chan a lot. I mean, I, I really appreciate that you also are tackling these things in like this not apologetic or melancholic way, right? Where it's just like the unknowable nuances of an Asian household, right? Like you're doing it with vigor and action and energy. And, you know, that's what I appreciate about Dave as well. You know, it's like without without throwing it away. You know, you've got that 5,000 years of history on your back, but it's not crushing how you're expressing it, is what I'm saying. And I think, like, Boogie is an exciting movie to watch, too. And it's, I think it's really essential that it was, you know, it's a coming-of-age movie, It's, but it's also action. <laughs> it's a basketball movie. And there's this narrative thrust that's happening, and it's there's taste to it, and it's all of the things that you love aesthetically in this movie as well. Yeah, I think it's a privilege to get to be, like, a criterion art director and you make a slow moving film that's completely pocket scenes and emotions like look i love those movies those are the ones i like to watch but as asian americans we also have to represent but we also have to entertain because we don't have the luxury of flopping at the box office and not hurting somebody else's opportunity you know like you could have like arty farty white films a hundred of them and none of them make money no one's going to stop making white films you make a few arty farty Asian films that don't break bread, we're done. Yeah. You know? So it has to be fun. It has to be insightful. It has to represent. It has to be all these things. We have no option. The needle that you threaded, and again, this is my take. So take it with a grain of salt because I'm talking to the creator of it. Was you use basketball, this coming of age story? that I think a lot of people can relate to because everybody loves basketball movies, but you use that as a vehicle to unapologetically tell your version of Chinese American life in New York. It's not everybody's, yeah, but it's a version that has not been, that I think people need to understand this. This has never been told in film, yeah. in TV. Yeah. It'd be one thing to be like, oh, this is one of a hundred versions of this. So I want people that's listening to understand the significance of a movie, whether you care about basketball or Chinese-American culture or Asian-American culture or not, these stories that you may not resonate with you because you haven't lived it, that's okay. It shows you the diversity of the immigrant experience and also the importance of what came before you. Like this has not been, whether you like the movie or not, and you will, that's a significant achievement. And I said, props to you, man. Thanks, Dave. No bullshit. It I'm not throwing bullshit because, you know, yeah. anything. I was like, man, if I saw that with anyone, I'd be like, that's fucking cool, man. Yeah, we, we are doing something new. And and the feeling I wanted people to have is the exact one that you have now is, I'm like, man, imagine if you were an Italian-American and you saw Rocky in the 70s and he takes you on this tour through Philadelphia and Italian-American culture and boxing's there and it's a spine, but it's about Rocky. It's about the neighborhood. It's about this every man that nobody believes in. And it's a love story. At the end of the day, Boogie and Rocky are love stories because 
what we came to this country for is not just opportunity, economic, but it's to like find love in a lot of ways. Yeah. And and I can imagine, I always think about criticism from Asian culture and I could imagine some people saying that's not indicative of how I live or the people that I hang out with. I'm like, it's not supposed to, but you need, it needs to be supported and watched and viewed and shared and amplified because you may not see yourself in this story in exact same ways, but the more people are able to tell those stories, it's just one slice of this giant mosaic that we don't even have. It's one slice of many slices that have yet to be filled of the pie. And I want people to truly understand. And that's what I've been really dwelling on since I saw it two days ago. I was like, if this is the beginning and we're beginning to have this sort of Asian entertainment boom and and all kinds of things in culture, I was like, when Hugo's 40 years old, this isn't even a conversation. Yeah. Hopefully when he's 10, it won't be. Yeah. You know, that's crazy. Hopefully when he's 10, yeah, it's, we can make that much change. I mean, I remember when I wrote Fresh Off the Boat, it was crazy that we were going to do a TV show. There had been no Asians on television for 25 years. And then now since Fresh Off the Boat, we went on the air 2014. Man, it's only been seven years. And like, look at the progress. It's really, really amazing. And so are you going to you gonna write and direct a film? That, <laughs> the, the, uh, number one, I was telling again my wife this because she said, you know what? Eddie's a really good actor. I was like, yeah, that's actually the one of the more underrated things in the whole movie. He's like, oh, yeah. You're hilarious in it, number one. And two, you're a really good actor. <laughs> and three, I said, Grace, don't worry because the world knows what a shitty actor I am already because I can't. <laughs> I don't, I'm not, I just can't do it. It's impossible. So I, I think anybody can act, number one. But to be good at it is very difficult. And I think you're a really good actor, man. I, that's, that was actually the, the most impressive thing. I feel like you could direct, though. I don't know if I can, man. I, I, I need... No, no, no. You already... You, can I tell you one thing, a story? This is because I think chefs are going to appreciate this, and I think you will. The two DPs that I had considered for this job, and we absolutely hired the number one DP, Brett Yukowicz. I love him. He's, I will never make a movie without him unless he doesn't want to do it. But I interviewed these two guys, Sam Levy and Brett Yukowicz, and I didn't realize... Bauhaus was on Rivington between Norfolk and Suffolk. Sam lived in a building on one side. Brett lived on a building on the other side. And they had all met me at Bauhaus. (laughs) And I was like, whoa, this is so strange. And I remember Sam told me in the beginning of the interview when I spoke to him, was he like, look, I'm unavailable for this. I can't do the film, but I read the script and I just wanted to like meet you and tell you like, I fuck with you. I was a fan of Bauhaus. But also, I saw what you and your brother did when you opened that restaurant by yourselves in that basement in the cold. I saw how hard you worked. And he goes, no matter what happens during production, just know it will not be harder than what you did in that restaurant. (laughs) The fact that you opened that restaurant, like against all odds, you can make this film. And then I talked to Brett about it. And Brett's like, yeah, like. And he goes, you know, honestly, just take care of the actors. And I was like, that's it. Like, I I don't need to like learn lenses. I don't need to like learn more about camera or like, is there, I would ask him like, yo, are there any technical like textbooks I could read before we go into production? Like the most Asian thing you could say. I was like, Brett, like what books should I read before directing? (laughs) He's like, dude, you can literally fuck everything up. Just make sure you get the performances from actors. And I was like, that's it. 
Because I was like, I'd watch Wes Anderson and be like, he's got all the set design and costume and everything, Maison San going on. And he's like, you're going to do that. It'll be fine. But like, you can actually fuck all of that up as long as you get the performances. That is the director's sole job. And that's what really put a battery in my back during pre-pro and made me stop worrying if I was good enough. Because while I sold it in and I told the studio I got to direct this, it's funny, you ask for this thing, you fight for it, and once you get it, you're like, oh, fuck, how am I going to do this? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, the day it was greenlit, I called my best friend, who's the executive producer, Rafael Martinez. I was like, all right, bro, like, are we actually going to pull this off? And <laughs> it really helped me that Sam Levy was like, nah, there's no way it's harder than opening that restaurant you did. So, <laughs> chefs, go direct the <laughs> <laughs> All of you, every chef. We might all need to get a new careers soon enough. Uh, with the state yeah. of the industry, but um, dude, wh- where did you get the? Did you get inspired for the beginning and the and the end? And, and uh, without revealing too much, with the with the cutaway of the eyes, like I thought that was a very nice artistic touch. And ex- without having to say anything, you said everything. Yeah, it's you know I got it just because I stare into people's eyes a lot. I know that sounds super weird, but I remember a girl my freshman year of college. Her name was Dina. She was like, you know what I like? I was like, what? She's like, you make eye contact. You always look me in the eye. And I was like, oh, I didn't know you noticed. She's like, yeah, like you actually like stare. <laughs> like, yeah, you know, and, but it's corny. They're like a window, but it's like boxing too. Like you're just staring. You you can tell what punch a guy is going to throw by looking at his face. You know, like you know what's That's coming. That's why I always get punched in the face, Eddie. <laughs> 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 but no, man, like the eyes comes from just like, a weird personal thing, but the beginning and the end and the fortune teller spine, that is actually something. Oh, your mom. Yeah, my mom. My mom's a fortune teller. She's so good. She's a good yeah. actor too. She was really good. Yeah, thanks, man. Yeah, no, my mom is incredible. She was a really good actor. There are tons of first-time actors in this film. Boogie, Pop, my mom, me, the basketball players, Memphis, Houston, Dennis Thompson, they're all from my rec league team. Um, young Mr. Chin is also from my basketball team. Ben <laughs> Shea, first-time actor. So Dave, you know, we got you and Chris next one, you know, <laughs> clip up. First time, first, <laughs> get, the, get ready. Eddie's, Eddie's next film is going to be full of last time actors, uh, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> I will say though, I'm glad you noticed the first scene and the last scene of the film, Fortune Telling is my mom. The the studio, you know, gave us a lot of notes and, and for good reason where they were like, you know, Eddie, these things about Asian America make sense to you, but they're very foreign to another audience. Cause I had just like lines about spirituality and, and our customs and our beliefs and things that you and I and Chris would totally get, but needed to be like spelled out and shown in a scene. So me and my buddy Omid were sitting around thinking about it one day. And he's like, Eddie, you, you just gotta like take this thread and create like a theme and a thread over the film that physically shows them what you're talking about. And I was like, oh, the film needs a fortune teller. He's like, fine, whatever. He's like, you just need a device that can explain this esoteric, like cryptic Asian shit. So (laughs) the fortune teller is basically the catch-all for all of our spirituality and beliefs. and, And in a way, magical realism within the film. And like, that's one of my favorite things about the show Atlanta. It's like magical realism and and black magical realist films. But for every culture, you know, you could be Creole, you could be Chinese. 
there's just aspects about old cultures that are very spiritual that this country perhaps doesn't get. So you need to give them like a reason or, or like a manifestation. And that's what the fortune teller is. It's a catch-all. And then you did the thing that I've done my whole life, which is when I can't explain Chineseness to somebody, I just have my mom do it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yo, Chris, you write the script. Dave, you direct it. Hugo acts. You got a film. Hugo Hugo should have been the baby. You know what? I thought about that. I was like, oh, Hugo could do this. Yeah. I'm as New York to you, you. You showed a variety of slices of New York, but food, again, being a big part of this, uh, it, in a lot of different ways, you could almost categorize this as a food movie because food is like every 10 minutes, someone's eating something with, with some comment, whether it's the raw egg. Yeah. Like, I mean, if you don't know, like people don't know, but you just sort of gave the, the secret out. And I don't know if people do it, but yeah. they should. The double boiled soup too, man. You threw that in there. I was so happy to see that one. <laughs> but so also, beautiful. did you film in Kanji Village at the end? Yes. Yes, you see it, the garlic crispy That's chicken. It, man. man, I saw That's... that with Eleanor. I was like, I've been in that fucking yep. booth. <laughs> yep. Similar conversation, similar conversation, exact same conversation. Talking about dolphins and shit. I said, Hey, he stole this shit from me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's the date spot. You know what I mean? Like, like when I didn't have that much money too, I was like, yo, if if she's cool with this being like a big night out at a Chinese restaurant, then this this could be my shorty. You know, like Kongi Village is familial. And one thing I was if like, I was like, man, this would be a good moment to sort of tell the audience about culture in general. Asians don't eat rice the same way. In that scene, Boogie's eating rice. Can you let the audience know how you're supposed to eat rice? I mean, I, I put it in a bowl and I shovel it into my mouth and I bring the bowl to my mouth. But people think that's weird. And you see Eleanor, she's picking the rice up off the plate and eating it. And it's really, really funny. <laughs> Yang, that's the Chinese way. Correct? That's the Chinese way. It's it's uh, usually you squat. Yeah, usually you squat. I don't know. I feel. Do you guys? I, I mean, I, I took me a long time to get over the self consciousness of the of the shovel and, and inhale method. But like, that's how you're supposed to well, eat rice. Koreans dude. also. You guys like to. You guys like soupier rice. It's stickier, and you don't. I remember one time when we were in China or whatever. My dad was like making fun of how Chinese people ate the rice until he started eating yeah. the noodles, and he started eating like a fucking pig. <laughs> And I was like, this is just hilarious because he's like, why would you eat rice like that? It's got because, you know, you can do that because it's sticky. Chinese rice is, yeah. is more medium grain. And again, if you understand how Chinese people eat rice, it tells you such nuance about Asian culture. Chinese people want to go the most efficient, no bullshit fucking way. You, you take that goddamn cup and you shovel it. Yeah. <laughs> it's as fast as yeah. possible. I don't give a shit. Yeah. And I think that is like a beautiful thing. <laughs> I love that you noticed it because I was telling Boogie on set, I was like, yo, rip into that chicken. Like when you're doing this scene, don't overthink the scene. I was like, eat because that's what this character would do. He's ripping chicken. He's shoveling rice in his mouth. Like just, <laughs> and, and people were always like, this is going to be a nightmare for sound. We're going to get choppy dialogue. I was like, I don't give a fuck. This is real. You know, like you got to eat it this way. And then Eleanor was very elegant, picking each grain up. And, and it's funny you say this, Dave and Chris, because when I eat Thai food, everyone's like, ooh, sticky rice. I'm like, I don't know how to eat this. This shit is stuck. I'm like, give me fucking some pineapple fried rice or dry jasmine rice. I, I will not, I don't do the sticky one. 
I don't know how to do but it. But I think it was important too because of all the things that we've talked about, all kinds of shit about being Asian in this country. But one of the things that gets sort of neglected more or less is not just what we eat and what it looks like and what it tastes like, but how Asian people eat. Chinese people, <laughs> Japanese people, all of Asia eats differently too. It's not this fucking monolith. That is maybe the biggest gap that will never, ever be bridged. It's ain't chopsticks. It's yeah. all of this beautiful work. Chinese food is incredibly complex. takes a long time to make it specific. And then you eat it like a fucking lunatic. <laughs> you know, Korean people yeah. too. Ch- Japanese, they only go lunatic style on noodle soups and noodles. But everything else is yeah. very, like, orderly. But for the most, I would say Koreans and Chinese, it's like, it's a race. Yeah. And it's almost like you, because you're like, the food's going to run out. I think, especially this generation, like, it was, there's a cultural revolution. You know, Korea's been through every single war. It's just like, there may not be food in an hour. So go, run. I still remember distinctly in elementary school, a teacher one time telling our whole class, like, you're supposed to chew your food for 32 chews. Like, that's how many times you chew your food. And I tried counting one time, and I was like, uh, fuck this, man. Chewing is incidental in my world. <laughs> like, it goes in the mouth, and if it gets chewed a little bit, <laughs> that's great. But it's going straight down the gullet. I don't know what this chewing 32 times <laughs> shit is. <laughs> oh, that's, if that shit changes and Americans start eating like Asian people, like, then you know the world's gone another place, man. <laughs> I can't wait. I really hope it happens because even just like the idea of like fine dining to me, I'm just like, I don't want to dine this way. Like, this is so strange. You know, it's like, it's like someone watching you in the bedroom. (laughs) I mean, Dave, uh, you know, you had a a ramen restaurant. Eddie, you had a a bao restaurant. Like the fundamental problem with the business model of America is like, you're supposed to eat this shit in five minutes and get the fuck out so I can get the next customer. But you all want to sit here and linger. Like that's the, that's the fundamental problem. And you got to eat shit hot, man. I'm sorry. I have no patience for any other cultures that are like, it's too hot to eat. I was like, no, you have to eat it boiling hot. There's no other fucking way to eat it. (laughs) Yeah, like pizza. When people are like, I like cold pizza. I'm like, you like cold pizza because it's there. It's always there. Cold pizza is like that friend that doesn't challenge you. But you want hot food. You want to burn the roof of your mouth when you bite a piece of pizza, you know? (laughs) Yeah, friend that doesn't challenge you. It's it's a challenge. Eating is should be joy and hurt you because it, it's so yeah. hot. <laughs> I need people to understand. Like out. it's gotta be hot. Like you gotta you gotta you gotta almost really like have some battle wounds. And I don't know if we'll get people to be like they gotta accept the pain. Like boiling hot food, cauldrons of food. Like no part of the world except Asia. I don't want to say Asia. Maybe there's other parts, but I can think of particularly Chinese, Korean, even less so Japanese, but Korea, Japanese, if it's not ripping boiling, don't serve it to me. I don't want to, it's got to be eaten in that moment. Yeah. Like Korean takeout, when I get Korean takeout, I reboil everything. <laughs> I, I order from Sunnondang and I'm like, I reboil it. I put it in another casserole and then it's reboiled. It's the way of the future. Yeah, otherwise the salt doesn't melt either. We should have just talked about fucking food. But um, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, is there anything else you want to add? Like this conversation went all over the place and and I'm happy that it did. No, I love it. This 
That's why it's fun to, you know, just be the most repeated guest on the show. I, this is my first American appearance, guys. I know. This the is the first, first time American we appearance. haven't been talking to you at 2 a.m. Oh, let's get into this. Are you homesick for Taipei? No, not <laughs> at all. I will tell you something. I love Taipei. I love the people. But being there for a year, I got island fever. It's just small. But more than that, I have never been a, like, Team America guy. I, I've always seen all the issues with America. But going to Taipei and living in a country where I really only had one black friend and one Latino friend, and I didn't even get to see them that much. Everyone else was Asian. I really just missed being in a country where people disagreed. There were a lot of opinions. And every day you go outside, you're just not as sure of yourself. And I enjoyed that. And perhaps that ties back into what we were talking about with how I like to be physically pushed with like boxing or basketball. But I left Taiwan so happy and excited to come back to America and like an America evangelist for the first time in my life. Cause this is the greatest experiment going. Like we don't get to encounter and collide with all the cultures that we bump into in this country. And it's, it's really a privilege and blessing to be here. And a lot of the Taiwanese kids that I was friends with out there, they were like, man, I, I would love to go to America. It's just so much different culture going on. Like there's more information, there's more opportunity. Like I just want to see more stuff. And um, it really made me grateful for being an American. Wow. The government still owes us more. You know? <laughs> and it owes black people reparations. And, you know, I wish people would stop banging on Asian people, elderly, but I love America. I fully get what you're talking about, Eddie. I, it sounds, it'll sound completely digressive, but I went to, uh, I went to a farmer's market this past weekend for the first time in a year. And uh, a woman had like an annoying dog that was like getting into all this business. And uh, I was so happy to be annoyed with somebody for the first time in a year about something other than how they were wearing their mask. And I was like, this is what's important. <laughs> this is like what's actually important is what you said. It's crucial that we be back among people that we disagree with so that we can prove to ourselves that we can coexist with people who annoy the shit out of us. Because like for the last year, yeah. we have not been around anybody. I mean, Dave has been around me every day and I annoy the shit out of him. But that aside, we have not been in physical proximity to people and proven to ourselves, I hate this person, but I can coexist with them. And I think like that's that's America, man. Yeah, that's what I love about New York the most too. It's like, it's okay to be like, yo, you smell like shit on the train. Or it's New Yorkers would just tell you how they feel and argue, but it's all love. And it's like, all right, cool. And people like from LA will always try to understand New York, but I'm like, it's because you're just more thin-skinned in LA. You're not... It's not culturally acceptable. It's not socially acceptable. Just tell people how you feel and have it out. But in New York, it's amazing because you bump into everyone, you have it out, and you're still cool. Everything's okay. That's just part of life here. And you sign up for it. Yep. America. The very best of the world and the very worst simultaneous. <laughs> it's got the yin and yang shit yeah. going on. They just don't realize it. But it's like Taiwan, if you forget to invite someone to something or you're, you kind of like make a, make a social taboo, it's like you are canceled in my life forever. You have, you have embarrassed me. You have, you know, shamed me. And, and it's just like it's, the stakes are so high on every social interaction. <laughs> 
but it's also it's also again, would you say one reason why they've been culturally and we talked about this, I think the first podcast you were on, they've been able to handle the pandemic way more effectively than America because of the lack of disagreement. Yes, all of the things we loved in the first episode, I have to say it's like I just see a lot more clearly now where it is much more in Taiwan, like you don't get to be an individual as much. You don't get to have an outlying opinion. Everyone gets dragged back to the middle. And there's a lot of shame for being on the outside. In America, you're encouraged to be an individual. And as a youngster, there's, you know, you get made fun of for being on the outside. But as you grow older, there's a value to it. And there's a currency to being different. And especially in our times now, but then also you can't get everyone to merit mask and you can't get everyone to like quarantine for the good of your society and your community. We don't have that here, which is unfortunate. In Taiwan, they do. But while I was free to live my life and do everything, I didn't feel as free with opinions or ideologies or even just like lifestyle. Well, we're glad to have you back, man. Welcome home. Thank you, guys. Thank you for having me. Number one podcast. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that was our conversation with the great Eddie Huang. I hope that he continues to join us on this podcast many, many times. I'm excited to have conversations with other friends that are Asian American about this movie. I don't want it to be polarizing. I want people to love it, but I think it is awesome in terms of how it presents certain topics, certain situations that honestly... A lot of people don't talk about. So I don't know how it's going to be perceived, but I'm glad that it's out there. And and Eddie, I, I enjoyed it very much. And uh, happy birthday as well. Happy belated birthday, Eddie Huang. And if you're listening to this, send him a nice birthday message because he shares his birthday with the one and only Hugo Chang. But uh, check out Boogie. Check out, I think Raya is out. I haven't seen that. I'm going to check that out. And uh, stay safe, everybody. If you can get your vaccine, get your vaccine. Give us five stars on our Apple iPod page. I keep on messing that up. And we'll give you a shout out when we can. Uh, means a lot, guys. And check out Recipe Club. That's all. Have a good uh, weekend, everybody. <laughs>